Hi everyone, welcome to the May 2020 edition of Aon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh. I've been mostly locked up alone in my flat for the last month, so I may well have lost the ability to form coherent sentences, but we'll give this a go anyway. What's the worst that can happen? This month's guests are Dilesh Shah and Lara Kennard from Aon's investment team. They'll be along shortly to give us some insights into the impact of recent market movements on Scheme's LDI portfolios. In the meantime, let's see if we can find some non-coronavirus-related news to talk about. On the 8th of April, the Money and Pension Service, or MAPS for short, published a report on the progress made so far by the Pensions Dashboards programme. It's been a while since we last talked about this, so just as a quick recap, Pensions Dashboards are meant to enable individuals to view all of their retirement savings, including their state pension, in one place. The framework to support these is part of the Pension Schemes Bill, which is currently working its way through Parliament, albeit rather slowly, and the government's intention is that there will be a range of different commercial dashboards, together with a non-commercial dashboard hosted by MAPS. This first progress report highlights the scale and complexity of this exercise, as well as the various factors that will affect timescales, such as the progress of legislation and technological developments. Maps don't go as far as giving a timescale for when dashboards will be available to the public, but they do set out a number of tests that have to be met before going live, relating to security, user experience and coverage levels. Further progress reports will be published every six months, and a more detailed timeline should be available by the end of the year. Alongside the progress update, MAPS also published a couple of papers setting out their current thinking on the scope of dashboards and the data elements that would be required from pension providers. One point here that's raised a few eyebrows is an apparent shift in the expectations of DB scheme administrators from providing straightforward data items to actually providing calculated benefit projections. In particular, there's a proposal for the first phase to include estimated retirement benefits, and calculating these figures for all DB members would be a major exercise for most administrators. MAPS will be seeking views from the industry on these topics later in the year, so I think we can expect to see some interesting discussions when that happens. Last year, the Financial Conduct Authority consulted on a package of measures relating to DB pension transfer advice. Their main concern was that the proportion of DB members being advised to transfer out was too high, and that many of these transfers weren't really in the members' best interests. One of the issues highlighted was contingent charging, meaning where an IFA only gets paid if the transfer goes ahead, as this creates an obvious conflict of interest. We have been expecting the FCA to finalise the changes to its rules in the first quarter of 2020, including banning contingent charges in most cases, but this has now been put back to later in the year. As these changes are intended to strengthen and improve the transfer advice process, deferring them effectively means the current weaknesses and potential conflicts will persist for longer. I think this just reinforces the idea that the best way to ensure members are getting good quality affordable advice is for schemes to engage directly with the IFA market and identify a preferred provider. If you need any help with that, I'm sure our member options team will be delighted to speak to you. And before you ask, no, I'm not on commission for saying that. A few months ago, I told you the PPF were consulting on changes to their insolvency risk scoring methodology for the next three-year levy cycle. This included reappointing Dun & Bradstreet and launching a new web portal. The overall package of proposals was expected to result in a change of levy ban for around 60% of employers. The PPF have now issued a policy statement confirming that they'll be proceeding largely as proposed, so the new web portal has gone live and these new scores will be used to calculate the levy for the 2021-22 year. The measurement period for this has already started with the scores at the end of April, so it's well worth logging in to see how your scores have moved and check the data if you haven't already done so. And finally, I've put it off for as long as I can, but I have to do a bit on the coronavirus. 
The last few weeks, we've seen a whole raft of guidance from the pensions regulator, and that includes guidance for trustees of DB schemes on funding, guidance for all trustees on investment scheme management and administration, and guidance for employers on DB scheme funding, auto-enrolment and DC contributions. There are also a number of easements on reporting and enforcement that will last until at least the end of June. And on top of that, we've seen an array of guidance from the government and various other industry bodies. I won't even try to go through all of this in detail now, as we'd be here all day and half of it would probably be out of date by the time you hear it. Instead, I'll just remind you about Aon's coronavirus response site, which is continuing to be updated as the situation develops, and it's a great place to find anything you might need. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. I predicted last month the list of things being delayed due to the coronavirus outbreak would probably continue to grow. To be fair, I wasn't exactly going out all in there, so I can't feel too smug about being right on this one. Some of the bigger casualties this month have been TPR's funding consultation, which will now be open until the 2nd of September, and the consultation on the methodology for calculating RPI, which will now end on the 21st of August. That last delay may be more welcome than most, as the original six-week window for responses would have been pretty narrow, even under normal circumstances. And if you'd like more information on this, or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. As you'll no doubt be aware, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a significant impact on the global economy, and a lot of DB schemes will have seen big movements in the value of their investments. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dilesh Shah, who heads up Aon's LDI team, and Lara Kennard, one of our principal investment consultants, to talk about the recent market events and the impact on clients' LDI portfolios. So, Dilesh, if we start with you, can you just give us some background on the market movements we've been seeing recently? Thanks, Ricky. Well, as COVID-19 crisis hit the markets in March, we saw unprecedented levels of volatility. There were extreme sell-offs in equity and bond markets, and to compound this, we had sterling depreciating. Now, this was a perfect storm for some clients who needed cash to meet collateral calls, benefit payments, and reduce leverage in a period of significant illiquidity and depressed prices. The sharp rise in interest rates in mid-March meant that LDI managers, both pooled and segregated, needed cash to reduce the leverage. Subsequent government intervention brought rates down, increasing bond values, and hence the leverage in these solutions had reduced to acceptable levels. In the space of 24 hours, we had seen a round trip on real yields of almost 1.5%, which was unprecedented. Despite the reduction in leverage, some managers still required cash, even though they were now within their limits. This was frustrating as clients' collateral waterfalls were suffering. Assets that would be used to fund collateral requirements had fallen in value and were trading at significantly wider bid-offer spreads. Many clients had one prime source of collateral that sat alongside their LDI, often with their LDI manager, but illiquidity was causing issues at disinvesting at reasonable prices. Throughout all of this, we were in close contact with our buy-list LDI managers, and following discussions, some of the pooled fund deleverage events were cancelled. Now, this was a good result for clients who were no longer forced to disinvest from assets falling prices and high transaction costs. It's interesting how this situation worked for different clients. Actual experience depended on whether clients were in pooled or segregated solutions. Thanks, Dilesh. So if we focus on pooled mandates first, Lara, I think you may have an example from one of the clients you work with. So one of my clients has around a 40% strategic allocation to LDI. That's around 300 million sterling and is currently invested in a pooled mandate with one of our bi-rated LDI managers, which was recently impacted by the market movements described by Dilesh just now. Up until now, they've been receiving large amounts of cash being paid out of their LDI portfolio through re-leverage events as gilt yields have fallen significantly over the past 12 to 18 months. But at the end of March, with the large jump in real yields, we were notified of an upcoming deleveraging event and hence cash was required to be paid into the LDI funds in order to maintain the current hedge ratios. 
The event impacted five different inflation funds in my client's portfolio and amounted to a total cash call of approximately 30 million sterling, or around 3% of total scheme assets, with payment to be made at the beginning of April, so only giving around 10 days notice. My client actually had enough cash available in a liquidity fund to be able to meet this payment, but the pensions manager and trustees were still very concerned about the size of the capital call, given other cash requirements on the scheme and corporate during this crisis. We liaise closely with our LDI team to understand the situation in more detail and discuss potential options that could be considered. Following extensive discussions between our LDI team and the LDI managers, it was agreed to cancel the request for cash given the subsequent movements in markets. Although this specific situation turned out okay in the end, it was a very stark reminder about how much capital could be required at very short notice within LDI portfolios and often at times of widespread market stress, meaning depreciated asset values and very high transaction costs potentially. So that's an example of a pooled mandate. Dilesh, do you have any examples of how a client with a segregated solution managed this situation? Yes. Well, so as I mentioned earlier, it was a perfect storm for some clients. So clients with LDI, currency hedging and leveraged synthetic credit were massively impacted. But clients in a segregated solution had much more control of the situation, being able to run higher levels of leverage. One particular client I was working with had all three of these. With a sudden rise in rates, sterling falling and credit spreads widening in mid-March, they were hit particularly hard and their solution was becoming highly, le- highly leveraged. As they were in a segregated solution, they had a lot more options and would not be stocked out by the manager. We looked at various options, including selling down daily dealt credit funds, but this was going to result in crystallizing a loss of around about 10%. So rather than selling credit, the client had physical equity. And what turned out to be the easiest and most cost-effective solution was to synthesize their equity exposure. So that's where they sell down the equity for cash and enter into a derivative contract to maintain equity exposure. The cash generated was transferred to the LDI manager to delever the solution. Now, the client didn't have synthetic equity exposure before. This was done within a few days without having to remove exposure at depressed prices. What was key here is that the infrastructure was in place for the LDI manager allowed flexibility in this time of heightened market volatility. Having a segregated mandate meant we had better control of the situation. Okay, thanks. So we, I mean, we always try to finish up with a few key takeaways. So can I ask you to both share your thoughts on the lessons learned here and what clients can do to prepare themselves for situations that might come up like this in the future? Yeah, so I'll start with a few points from an implementation standpoint. And there are four areas to consider. So firstly, ensure you are aware of the potential size of any cash calls or cash distributions in your LDI portfolio. Most LDI managers will be able to produce a heat map of the sensitivity to significant movements in rates and inflation for your specific LDI portfolio, which they can update and provide on a regular basis. Secondly, ask your manager to add you to your email distribution list to receive notifications about upcoming leverage events. Some managers offer notifications warning you that an LDI fund is approaching a distribution or capital call event and then a further notification of the event going ahead. This gives you more time to plan and discuss with the relevant stakeholders to decide the possible next steps. Thirdly, ensure you have a cash collateral plan in place to address any of these large cash requirements. You may also want to consider situations where all markets might be stressed. And lastly, make sure your rebalancing letter is up to date and reflects the agreed cash plan. Do consider situations where a liquidity fund may be exhausted. In my client's case, we stipulated that should the liquidity fund not hold enough cash, then the manager could disinvest from equities given the direction of travel for this client. But that may not be the same for every client. There are also a number of structural considerations that I'm going to hand over to Dilesh to discuss. Thanks, Laura. Clients should be considered moving from a pooled solution to a segregated solution where size allows. 
it's worth pointing out that we've been talking to clients about this for a while and have been undertaking cost-benefit analysis for many clients. Secondly, make sure you have widest toolkit available with your LDI manager. For example, being able to use total return swaps as well as repo for hedging and potentially broadening out beyond LDI to more synthetic instruments like credit default swaps or equity futures. Finally, be prepared to adapt your plans. Collateral ladders are helpful, but at times it may not be appropriate to use a particular asset class to fund collateral due to market stress. Well, I certainly feel much better informed now than I did 10 minutes ago, and I'm sure many of our listeners will feel the same. So thank you very much to both of you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, it's time for me to head out for today's state-sanctioned socially distanced run around the block. So thanks for listening, and thanks again to my guests, Dilesh Shah and Lara Kennard. I'll be back next month, probably around the same time and almost certainly in the same place. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. If you'd like more information on our retirement solutions, or if you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.